Well, we've come to the end of um, the book of James and um, it's a great book, isn't it? Um, Lots of people I've spoken to have said to me that uh, they like James because it's practical, they can understand a lot of the things that it says, Uh, but most people say they have trouble putting it into practice and uh, that uh, that is the reality that, uh, that we have in life. And uh, this very last uh, section of James, uh, before we look at that, I wanted to just uh, go back quickly over the other chapters and uh, just um, highlight one or two things that we've been talking about there to remind you of what you've already heard and what you've probably already uh, at least mentally decided that you would commit to doing. Whether in reality you do them, that's another thing. Uh, But um, in chapter 1, it spoke about trials and temptations and it all, we also talked about listening and, and doing in our Christian lives, being uh, quick to uh, listen and slow to speak. Uh, in chapter 2 we talked about the fact that there was no room for favouritism, that we should treat all people equally. Uh, and we also looked at the concept of faith versus works. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you uh, my faith by what I do. And chapter 3 dealt with trouble with the tongue. Well, no one has any difficulties with that one, I'm sure. Um, and it also talked about being wise. Heavenly wisdom is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Uh, in chapter 4 we talked about submitting to God. Uh, come near to him and he will come near to you. Uh, we reflected on the fact that there was no room for boasting, uh, that you do not even know what will happen tomorrow and yet we make all these plans and we think that we have it all together. Uh, and then uh, last week Keith spoke to us with warnings about uh, riches and uh, to be patient in suffering. Be patient and stand firm because the, Lord is, the Lord's coming is near. And then we come to this last section and uh, there's lots of different parts in this that we could deal with. The overriding theme here is prayer and you would have gathered that as we considered uh, through the service today. We've talked a lot about praying. But I could highlight maybe just one or two verses and we could talk about that. So I, I thought uh, verse 16 would be a good one, Rob, to start with. Uh, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for one another. So if we spent the morning dealing with that, it would be would be an interesting morning, I think, Chris. But uh, no, we're not going to perhaps get to that just this morning. This final section, though, in the book is very much a focus on prayer. It deals with a lot of other things, but it's, it's primarily focusing on prayer and that's what I want to talk to you about in all circumstances of life today. F.B. Meyer is a name the older people would know, a person who has written many books and contributed much to to our Christian faith and a comment made is this by F.B. Meyer, the tragedy is not unanswered prayer but unoffered prayer. And in life, isn't that true? So often we know of a certain situation and yet we fail to pray. The challenge for us in this passage today is that prayer should be made in times of trouble, in times of joy, in times of sickness and in times when we're trapped by sin for yourself and for others. And prayer works. 
Uh, Andy spoke a quote from um, Hudson Taylor this morning. I uh, was reading about uh, something about Hudson Taylor and it said this, when he was on a sailing ship going to China, the captain came to him and said there was no wind and they were drifting towards an island which was inhabited by cannibals and they were not too keen about the potential outcome. So they were concerned and the captain implored uh, Taylor that he would pray. And so um, Hudson Taylor said, all right, I'll pray, but you need to set the sails. And the captain was anxious about the stupidity of putting the sails up when there was no wind, but Taylor said, I will not pray unless you set the sails. And so indeed the captain did set the sails and the wind came and about 45 minutes later the captain came back to, to Taylor's cabin, found him on his knees and said, stop praying, we cannot contain the wind. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so that to me just emphasises the truth that prayer does indeed work. Um, today I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged to perhaps set the sails and in anticipation wait to see what God can do in your life personally if you dare to believe and trust him. There is a tension of course that exists when we pray. Uh, Praying what you want versus praying what God wants. We only see a small part, God sees the big picture. Um, Another tension is the huge variety of prayers that God must receive. How does he deal with them all I wonder? because we're going for a family picnic. So you see, we're going to pray that the weather is good and that we have a great time because it's hot and sunny. But of course our Christian farmers are praying that they want it to rain because they need the rain for their crops. But we're going to go and we're going to have our picnic where the farmer has his crop. So how does God answer a prayer like that? I mean, it's so difficult, isn't it? There's such complexity in the way in which we pray. What about politics? We, uh, we have people who, who are com- totally convic- convinced that the party they are praying for is the best party that we should have for our country and they are committed Christians praying that this party will win. However, in the opposition camp is another group of equally committed Christian people and they are passionately praying that their party will win because they are convinced that they've got God on their side. And yet God has to sift through all of that and, uh, and if you bring that down to our daily experience, God has to sift through the things that we are praying and maybe what is behind them and the motives and so on. How does God answer such diversity in prayer? Prayer is mentioned in this passage seven times in just the first few verses. So it is obviously a high priority of James. James uses confronting language to make us take note of what he's trying to teach us right throughout his letter. In chapter 1 verse 2 he said, Consider it pure joy when you face trials. And as uh, was it... um, uh, it was a Norell said this morning, pure joy is not quite the way that I think about it when I face trials and I face difficulty. In chapter 2 verse 14 he said, if you claim to have faith uh, but you don't provide for your brother and sister in the faith, generously support them, what value is there in your Christianity? 
In chapter 3 he says, if you can't control your tongue, you're a long way from being a mature Christian. In chapter 4 he says, if you know what you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. And again in chapter 4 he says, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. So James, throughout the letter, has been using very confronting and and almost shock tactic um, statements to make us sit up and think about these issues and it's no different in this last chapter. James knows that there is no easy pat answer to life's challenges. Life can be complicated, it's not always neat and tidy, it's not always easy and James wants us to engage our lives and our faith together so that we can face challenging times. Now I've got a little thing here just need to take that out because I want that later. But I want, Chris, I need you to help me because in here is an egg. Could you break that for me? You can break it in there. It's okay. I've got a little bit of tissue. Yeah, any way you like. I just, a bit of a mess. Oh, Chris, you were just a little bit too enthusiastic. Let me give that one to Graham and Elizabeth. We're getting you cut, right? Yeah, yep. <laughs> well, now, you... Now, I, if you want to get Chris to help you with anything, <laughs> if, you, if you want to go and have a wash, that's all right, because the next, the next part of this experiment is going to take a little bit of time. Um, Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Life, life is messy. It is. But, Rob, because you are one of the older, wiser people in the church, can I give that to you? Would you put it back together? Could you, could you just put that yellow... Put, put the yellow stuff back inside, will you? With all the expertise I have... No chance. No. <laughs> why, why, why is it then that we think we can fix everybody's problems so easily? Life, life's messy, isn't it? It's not always straightforward. And James says that, uh, that there are things we can do but it's not always going to work out just the way that we perhaps hoped that it would. He didn't know about Chris, of course. (laughs) Today's take-home thought for you is this. Prayer is powerful. God wants to act in our lives through prayer in powerful ways. Heaven and earth meet in prayer. It's like we put one foot into prayer, one foot into our difficulties, um, one, one foot firmly into God which brings his influence into our lives. Prayer can change our circumstances and prayer can change you, prayer can change me. The big question is, should my circumstances change as a result of prayer or should I change as a result of prayer? James 5 and 13, James says this, If anyone is in trouble, he should pray. If they're happy, they should offer praise to God. Prayer should be as normal for the Christian as breathing is. 
It should be the principle and the practice of our Christian lives. James says, when trouble comes, and it will, we should pray. When suffering comes, and it will, we should pray. Prayer to God should be offered in every season of life. Now, it's in hard times, we're often driven to pray, aren't we? It's easier to pray when it's tough and it's difficult and sometimes we are more focused to pray in those times. James says to us that's good and we should do that. But we should pray in the good times. We should offer praise. We should be thankful in the good times but sometimes we're neglectful to do that. And in verse 14 and 15 he introduces to us one of these seemingly shock statements. Is anyone sick? Which we know from time to time will happen to all of us. Call the elders and the prayer offered in faith maybe will make them better. That doesn't say that. The prayer offered in faith will make them better, will make the sick person well. Very absolute. A statement, a brief statement for James to make which has enormous consequences for us when you think it through. Um, what does he mean? It's a little bit like the statement that Jesus made in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7 and verse 7 down to verse 11, we read these statements. Ask and you will receive. Knock and you will, it will be opened. Seek and you will find. Do we always absolutely see these outcomes to our prayers? Well, life's experience would tell us that these statements aren't absolutes, that we don't see a guarantee that these things happen all the time. What do we do when things don't go according to the way that we pray? How do we handle it when we pray for a situation and it doesn't get better? The sick person doesn't get well. The marriage still deteriorates. The child still rebels. The business still fails. And yet passionately, passionately we've prayed that those things would fix themselves, but they haven't. So how do we handle that? Andy sent me a clip this week of uh, John Piper. And John Piper, American preacher, says of Matthew 7 and 7, he says this, What do these promises mean? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Do these promises mean every time, always, I will get everything that I pray for? Well, some people think they they do. Experience tells us it doesn't work that way because if you could make God do everything that you asked just by asking, you would indeed be God. If you could speak and it happened every time, you would be God. Secondly, Piper says, if you were the person who could pray and it was always answered, you wouldn't want that responsibility. Who, who would want to have to run the world? But that's what, it's, that's what that means. If every time you prayed, you got what you asked for, you would be able to run the world. 
Only God can do that. Although I hasten to add some of us think we can, uh, but only God can. And imagine what would happen if you, uh, to you, if every time your prayers were answered, you would be a very popular person. Everybody would want you, wouldn't they? Give me the lotto numbers. Just need to know for next week only. That's all I want. Do this for me. Do that for me. You would have no peace. You would not want everything you asked for to come true, believe me. What Jesus is saying is that only God can give to his children what is for their ultimate good. In Matthew 7, that section goes on to talk about a father and a son. A father does not give to their child a stone when they ask for bread or give them a snake when they ask for a fish. Piper says it's a bit like going to the pet shop and the little child says to his father, I want the snake. It's really nice and I love its teeth. But there's no way that the father is going to give the child the snake because it's not going to be for the child's well-being. And it's like that in our prayers. Our heavenly father knows what we need and we pray, but often we pray amiss and we don't really know what it is that we're asking for. If a child asks for a snake, this verse tells us that God would not give it to us because he knows better. In fact, he loves us too much to give us everything that we ask for. God does not give us give bad, hurtful things to his children. God only gives the best to his children. And this is a test, of course, uh, this is a test to our faith, isn't it? What, what a test when, when we ask, when we earnestly pray, when we seek God and we do not get the outcome that we want. It tests and stretches our faith because so often we cannot see beyond our immediate circumstances. But you know the truth behind all this? It brings enormous stability to our lives to recognise that God only gives the very best to his children. So when James says we are to pray, if we pray and we do not get the answer we want, we can be sure that our Heavenly Father will only give to us what is for our very best. Even in the most difficult and the trying circumstances of life, God will still give to us what is for our ultimate good. So what does all this mean as we look at James? The first part of the the section talks about um, is anyone in trouble? Well, most of us are in trouble one way or another from time to time, aren't we? Then we should pray. Then he goes on and he says, is anyone sick? He should call the elders for a prayer for healing. It's interesting that that responsibility is given to the elders of local church and we know when we looked at this book, at the beginning of the book, we know that it is written to a scattered group of people. So it is fair to say that the, that the challenge to call the elders to pray is still a challenge that's relevant today 
and that within a church congregation like us we should still feel at ease to call the elders to come and to pray for us. Uh, A responsibility that is not given to the Pope or to the Bishop or to some special person in in robes or to the travelling evangelist who's coming through town next week for a special healing meeting. That's not what James is saying. James is saying if, if there is a problem you can feel free to call the elders to come. The thought of the elders anointing a sick person with oil is symbolic. There are lots of people who have varying comments about what did the anointing really mean? Did it have medicinal value? Uh, Was it purely symbolic? Uh, What does it mean? But I think in our circumstances today, it is not unreasonable to think that it is a that it is a symbol of 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 the elders standing with the person who is not well and praying with them, and and it and it can bring for a sick person or a discouraged person or a distressed believer, the actions of the elders uh, may bring spiritual restoration and possibly in some cases may bring healing. Um, some believe um, that that uh, anointing has special medicinal purpose but that's for you to think through. The problem is that no group of elders ever experience complete healing and restoration every time they pray for a person in need. However, prayer for for the sick does make a difference. Only this week I was talking to a friend of mine who works with me most days and his father has just had uh, recently a mild stroke and I said to John, uh, how's Dad doing? He said, well, Dad... Um, they've told him that Dad will have to be in hospital for three weeks, then he will go to rehab for three weeks. Then on Thursday when I was talking to him, I said, how's Dad doing? He said, oh, he said, "Um, I'm bringing him home on uh, Sunday and then on Monday he'll be home permanently. I said, oh, he's done well. He said, yeah. He said, but I'm not surprised. I said, why is that? And I knew why. He said, because so many people have been praying for Dad. Dad has such a strong network in our church and uh, John had not the slightest doubt that there had been some influence as a result of the prayer of faithful people for his father's healing and, and it was expediated way beyond what the expectation of the doctors were. So we do see from time to time where God does work in situations like that. But a word of caution here. Some people will tell us that if your problems have not been solved when people pray for you, then there is something wrong with you or there is some sin in your life or some issue that you have not dealt with. Or maybe you've got a dud set of elders. That's another one, of course, isn't it? (laughs) That's that's another possibility. Perhaps the elders are no good, uh, Laurie. And people will put all of this guilt back onto people and say because there was not this positive outcome as a result of your prayer and you still had to go through that difficult situation then you were at fault or the elders were at fault because we know God couldn't be at fault because he's perfect so it couldn't have been him so if it wasn't him it had to be either you or the elders. But it's like the egg, it's just far more complicated than that. You just can't fix it quite that easily. Thank you, Chris. Um, Paul prayed three times 
for a problem to be taken out of his life and three times the answer came no. Paul recognised that uh, it was a no because it kept him humble and he recognised that God's grace was sufficient in every season of life for Paul. And this leads me to ask, how does our will and the will of God agree then on anything? We need a balance between our will and our desires for an outcome and God's will. Is the object of your prayer to bend God's will to your will or should your will be conformed to God's will? Because God's will is the ultimate key factor in answered prayer. You might pray for a million dollars but it's unlikely that that prayer is going to get answered. The situation is a bit trickier when you pray for a difficult situation we are facing and we receive no release, no apparent answer to the prayer. Sometimes it is in the will of God that we face tough times and clearly James sees value in trials of all kinds because he referred to that at the very beginning of his book. And I pray against difficult times because I don't like them any more than you do. But James tells us that the trials of life and the testing of our faith produces mature, complete followers of Christ. Truth is, none of us like the process that God sometimes uses to help bring maturity to our lives. Prayer and praise are special privileges for the Christian. There is not a time in our lives when we ought not be doing either one or the other. Um, James uses the example of Elijah to help us see that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why is it powerful? Because the righteous person and the person who is living in a very deep, close relationship with God practices a closeness to God and has a deeper understanding of God and his will for the world in which we live and for the life of his people. And from time to time in life you come across people who just seem to be that extra step closer to God. I've met a few people in my life that I would say are stand out in that situation and they just seem to have found or the ability or whatever it is to live in this relationship with God that is so much deeper and so much closer and so much more real than what many of us live in our day-to-day superficial and sometimes, dare I say it, carnal Christian experiences. People who live close to God pray for a deeper and a deeper understanding of his will they pray for, a deep, for deeper spiritual outcomes. And as we finish thinking about this section today, I want to think about the renovations that are going on in our church. Renovations, renovating is hard, it's messy, it's dirty, it's difficult work. Just ask Tony, I don't know if Tony's here today, but oh yeah, there's somebody's pointing, you must be there somewhere Tony. It's not always easy, is it? Uh, renovating and uh, and it's even more difficult when you've got so many bosses like this group of people here. Everybody has an opinion about what should happen. 
But renovating is, is hard, difficult and dirty work. But it is worth it when the job is done. It's good out there to have that new kitchen. The new foyer is going to be fantastic. And when this wall gets altered and the church has moved that direction and uh, we don't have to sit and look at the back of everybody's head quite so much, especially for those in the second, uh, in the stalls at the back and struggle to see and struggle to hear, it'll be worth it when it's all finished. But there's a challenge along the way getting it done. James concludes by challenging us in this last part of this little letter here, he challenges us to get involved in the lives of one another and journey together. And that is not easy. That is like renovating. If we're going to do it properly, it is tough. And take a genuine interest in the spiritual well-being of one another. James's last appeal to his readers has a touch of tenderness and a clear note of encouragement to those who help um, others and who have grown, uh, others who have grown weary along the way. He says, "My brothers," he wrote, "if anyone among you strays from the truth and somebody turns him around, let him know that the one who turns him back from the er- from his error will save his soul from death and will hide a multitude of sins." Those who have lost their way and there's probably a few in this congregation who from time to time lose their way. They have wandered away and James says that the wandering ones need somebody to get alongside them and encourage them back on track and to help keep them in the race. And James' reference here is not to evangelism but to restoration It's revival, not redemption, that he's got in view and the rescue action is of great significance. I often think that that, um, Paul kept Luke around to help keep him in the race. You know, um, Luke the physician had had a lot of involvement in the ministry of Paul And Paul was always getting beaten or in shipwreck or having to be let out of a place down the edge of the building in a basket and he was always in trouble. And he had whatever those difficulties were that none of us really know that he prayed that God would take. But he had a man who had his interests at heart and he stuck with him. And that's what we all need. And I think that's what James is saying to us. We need to develop this relationship within our church that enables us to have that care and compassion for one another. A lost sheep is saved from a life of misery and his sin is covered as if a veil was thrown over them, James is saying. A little bit like 1 Peter 4 and 8 says this, Above all, let each of us Uh, uh, sorry, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. A restored person can move ahead again on the path towards spiritual maturity with confession of their sin to God, with forsaking that. They can move restored, maybe because of the fact that you bothered to get involved in their lives. 
James says throughout his letter he's given us clear instructions about how we are to, to achieve practical holiness and spiritual maturity. He's pointed, he's pointed exhortations are designed to stab us, if you like, in the conscience and stir our souls. He says, let us stand firm in our faith with confidence in God. Let us serve with compassion. Let us speak with care. Let us submit with contrition. Let us share with concern for the needs of others. A believer should be what God wants him to be. He should do what God wants him to do. He should say what God wants him to say. He should sense what God wants him to sense. He should share what God wants him to share. Spiritual maturity involves every aspect of our lives every day. Maintaining open, sharing and praying relationships with one another will help us from bottoming out in our spiritual journey. Such relationships help give us spiritual strength and provide victory over sin. James has been concerned in this letter for people who professed a faith but perhaps it was false or dead or lagging and here he gives a clear warning that we are to care for and be concerned about the spiritual well-being of one another. Are you? Are you really that concerned about the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters here at Monty? Or is life so busy that you're so preoccupied with what goes on in your world that you're missing perhaps what's going on in someone else's? Howard Hendricks uh, tells a story about a young man who strayed from the Lord and was finally brought back to him by the help of a friend who really loved him. Hendricks asked this Christian uh, how it felt when he was out at sea in deep water, in trouble and all of his friends were on the shoreline hurling biblical accusations at him about justice and penalty and wrongdoing. And this man answered Hendricks by saying this. He said, there was a man who swam out to get me and he would not let me go. I fought him, but he pushed pushed my fighting aside and he grasped me and he put a life jacket around me and he took me to the shore. And he, by the grace of God, was the reason that I was restored. He would not let me go. He would not let me go. Let's not judge one another, but let's by prayer be concerned for each other's well-being, both physically and spiritually, as we are left to journey life together. You can take what you have learned from these past weeks and you can do uh, something with it or you can completely ignore it and do nothing with it. It's up to you. James finishes by encouraging us that if we, get in, if we do life deeply together we will help one another enormously and the journey will be easier. But sometimes we miss out. I, it's time to finish. There's no egg in this bag, Chris. You'll be glad to know. But what I do have is just an old rusty piece of pipe A couple of weeks ago I took this piece of pipe out of the ground, it's it's galvanised water pipe, was about an inch in diameter but you won't probably be able to see clearly but you can see that there's really only a very small little hole left there 
This pipe was the main water pipe for Rach and Andy's place, feeding water to their house. And of course the pressure was dropping and potentially one day it was going to block up. So we dug it up and pulled it out and put a copper line in and won't have this problem again. In the book of Ephesians, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote uh, and he pointed out a problem that the Gentiles have and he said, due to the hardening of their heart, he hasn't been able to make very many inroads with them. And that word hardening is the word that we get our word calcification from. And it's calcification that's caused that problem. There's been a reaction and stuff has got in and started to grow and accumulate and rust has developed until one day that pipe will no longer function as it was intended to function. We've gone through this book of James and in every chapter there are things that we ought to do in our lives. We know we ought to do it. We've got a problem with the way we talk. We've got a difficulty about the fact that we are prejudiced in the way that we deal with people, we don't treat them equally. We might have a difficulty because our prayers haven't been getting answered. We've still gone through the tough times. We're still struggling. We don't understand it. It's okay. It's okay to say I don't understand it but to trust God. There are just so many things here. Warnings about riches, submitting ourselves to God, making sure that our deeds, our actions and the words line up. We can be like that bit of pipe. We can be so hard, like Paul when he wrote to the Ephesians. The Gentiles were so hard, the word didn't get through. Or we can take it to heart and we can ask God to help us and do something about it and I pray that's what we'll do. Let us close. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to look into your word, to share it, to read it. Would you illuminate it to us by your Holy Spirit? We don't profess to know it all. We find it so difficult to live sometimes, Father. We have struggles. We have temptations. We submit. We do things we shouldn't do. But as your people, we love you. Our hearts, we want them to be right. We want our lives to be right. We want to honour you. We want to serve one another. We want to support one another. We want to help one another. We don't want to judge one another. So by your Holy Spirit living and working through us, would you help us in this coming week as a community here at Monty to reach out and care more for each other. And may we indeed have soft hearts that you can apply your word to and work through us that we will be the people that you want us to be. We thank you for every blessing. We thank you that you don't answer every prayer that we ask. We thank you that you give us far better than what we ask for and yet we find that so hard sometimes to see. Please help us to have spiritual eyes that would see and understand what you're doing in our lives Father, for those going through deep water today, some have bereavement and sadness in their family and I pray for them. Pray for Jean and her family. 
I pray again for Norma that she would be restored. I pray for those who are not well, those who have sickness, those who would just long to be free of it. Father, would you, would you minister to them today? And Father, would you help each of us to be more sensitive to the needs of one another? We commit ourselves to you in the name which is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.